0: This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content, to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions.
1: This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Yanni Giannaris. Yanni is a co-founder and CEO of Wire, which provides payment infrastructure for Web3 companies. Wire started off enabling merchants to accept Bitcoin in 2013 and eventually pivoted from B2C to B2B to serve developers. We discuss Wire's major pivots over the past decade, the inefficiencies of traditional cross-border money transfer, and the decoupling of crypto exchanges as on-ramps. Please enjoy my conversation with Yanni Gianrus. So today I'm joined by Yanni Gianaros. Yanni, thank you for joining me today.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm really excited.
1: Yanni, you're one of those people that has been recommended to me by multiple folks that said you and Yanni have to talk. And after doing the research to get ready for this, I can totally see why. So I'm really excited to hear the story of WIRE. Before we jump into WIRE, take us back to your early days as an entrepreneur and how you and your co-founder, Michael, met because I think it's a really interesting and fun story.
2: It really is kind of like an obscure story. So I was in Baltimore and I used to work for a company called SafeNet and they moved me out here for a project in San Francisco where I'm currently based. I got in my car and Toyota Corolla traveled cross country. It was like most epic solo trip I've ever done by myself. I came to San Francisco and I knocked on the door after like driving a whole week. Michael opened up the door and I was like, hey, what's going on? Who are you? I thought I was this Airbnb by myself. And he's like, no, there's like 50 people in here. And it's like this large house that I walk in, and there's like 50 bunk beds inside a room, quite literally like an orphanage that was full of Wi-Fi. There was all these entrepreneurs; they all came from every single part of the world, and they're all trying to build a business, raise money, do whatever they want to do in this house. And I'm like, I need to leave here. It's like the dirtiest place in the entire world. I'm paying way too much money. I don't know what's going on. And he's like, Nah, no, nah, dude, just bunk up here. You're good. Tall Australian guy, just like tell me to stay there. And I stayed for a day. I was like looking at different Airbnbs, trying to leave. Couldn't find anything. And within two days, I just fell in love with the whole community there. I fell in love with hanging out with Mike, building businesses with him. He was a very infectious person. And we just went on a tear and just started building some really cool projects. I got into crypto before that, and he was already into crypto. And we just started working on different financial products, started going to meetup groups. And the rest is history. We started doing a lot of different things. But it's super funny because our first product that we released was a financial app. We tried to help people save money. And there were some rewards built on Bitcoin. This is like 2012, 2013 time period. We were beating our houses against the wall for a really long time because like fintech is just generally hard. We took a weekend. We saw this company called Prim. That was a YC company. They, were, they raised a lot of money and they were just picking up people's laundry. They were like, we could do this way better. Why did they raise so much money? We could do this way better. What we did was we dressed up as superheroes and just walked around and picked up people's laundry, like put it in my Toyota Corolla. It was like a massive success. The first week, people called Wayne, it was like word of mouth. Hey, Batman's picking up laundry. You can order what's superhero you want. We pick it up and deliver it. And it was the worst business. We weren't making any money, but it was so much fun. The way that that stopped, it was that on Labor Day weekend, we had a massive list of places we had to get to. We picked up all the laundry. We went to our laundromat and it was closed. And we we're just like, oh no, what's going on? And we went to a few other laundromats and they're all closed. So we just went to the washer and dryer and just like washed 50 bags of clothes ourselves. And we're like, this is not us. Like, we do not want to do this. This is not fun. What are we doing? And I think like two days later, we shut it down and just went back to focusing on our current financial business that we had at the time. Really wild ride, but that's the too long get a read story of how Mike and I met and how we started building some products.
1: So for people that are looking what to do during a crypto bear market, you could definitely dress up like a superhero and deliver clothes. So you left the laundry business. You guys were definitely hustlers and trying to find ways to make money and build stuff together. Did you stop the crypto piece or were you doing crypto the whole time and went back to start SnapCard and the early days of Wire?
2: It's called SnapCard because you wanted to snap your card to save money type situation. It was a browser extension that overlaid every single shopping cart. And it picked up things from the shopping cart and put it into a universal shopping cart on your browser. And it allowed you to save money to buy those items. What we did, was just added crypto because we were obsessed with crypto back in 2012. And we used to go to the meetup groups, one of the first Bitcoin meetup groups in San Francisco. Brian Armstrong was there. Some of the coolest people that went out to start incredible businesses and change the world. We added crypto as a means to buy the products. And we posted it on Reddit and the Bitcoin Reddit group. And that just completely blew up. It's like, oh, wow, you could buy anything on the internet using Bitcoin. It looked like magic because you put everything in your shopping cart and you paid a Bitcoin invoice. And a couple of days later, you had your goods. So a bunch of people had all these crypto and they couldn't use it. You didn't have all these like Bitcoin credit cards. You didn't have people accepting Bitcoin back then. It was a really unique product for its time.
1: In those days, that's 2012. If you're going on like an Amazon or something, how did you technically do that? How did you accept money transfer and like get them their goods?
2: It wasn't that interesting in the back end. Literally, we showed a Bitcoin invoice. We converted it into US dollars and use our credit cards in the back end and buy the products and then ship it out to them, like drop ship it out to them. So it was just like incredible. It looked like magic on the front end. But in reality, it was just Mike and I just processing orders every single day. We'd wake up and we had a few of orders that we have to process and go through. And we thought we were going to do some automation stuff, but it never got to it. But we were solving a big problem. People had Bitcoin. We had to use it the way that we made money was two ways. One, we charged a small fee. I think it was like 1%. And we also made 2% cash back on our credit cards. So I had the best credit in the entire world because it was my personal credit card I was using for a very long time. And that was the business. That caught wind for an accelerator. It's like, hey, you're actually helping people buy things using crypto. And we got accepted to Boost VC Accelerator at the end of 2013. And we went into BoostVC, we're just like, hey, we already have a business. We're processing close to like $200,000 a day in orders. A lot of people are buying things all over the internet using a Bitcoin. And that's all we did during the accelerator. We were just processing orders day in, day out. Since day one, we've been a real use case focused. if that makes sense.
1: We're going to get into the fact that you eventually spun up about 10 different businesses and then narrowed it down. With Card being the first, as that business was growing, What were the gating? it? Did you guys run out of credit limits? Did you need lines of credit? Was it a pivot to another business? What led to the next iteration of SnapCard?
2: Pretty quick, we understood that this community was amazing. That's what drove both Mike and I to the community. I used to work at a data encryption company, and they passed around the Bitcoin white paper early on in 2012. And I read half the paper, but I didn't really understand most of it, to be honest. But all the cryptographers in this internal forum were like, this is the most incredible thing. Safenet used to hire more photographers than any other company in the world. And they were like, this is the best thing that ever happened. I'm like, okay, I got to read it. But what I did pay attention to was Bitcoin.org and like the community on the forum. I was super into Reddit. I was super into like just communities back then. I was going down the rabbit hole. My co-founder, Mike, ran his own meme website. We were both very social into like the community environment. And Bitcoin was the original community. NFTs are probably like different communities now that probably have much more followership. But like Bitcoin was an original infectious community, a group project, trying to work on something for the greater good. And that's what I fell in love with. We knew that something was there in 2013 when we launched this product. Pretty quickly, we realized that, hey, if we're really serious about Bitcoin, it's not going to be the stopgap solution that the real solution is going to be every single website in the world is going to accept Bitcoin. And we need to build technology to do that. We pivoted to a BitPay style Bitcoin payment processor. We were the first to uh, accept other tokens, too. We accepted Litecoin, Ripple, and Dogecoin when it first came out. That was our second iteration, pivoting into that and being like, hey, this is the business we want to do, not the stopgap. Put it in your universal shopping cart. That was the first assumption we made and building for the future, and that was the first pivot. That was in 2014. and That was the first bear market. So then we realized pretty quick after that, pivoting into that ecosystem that nobody wanted to spend the Bitcoin. We did massive amounts of campaigns, getting merchants to accept it. We got Microsoft to accept Bitcoin rewards. We got more merchants in San Francisco accepting POS than any other city in the world. We did really well, but no one's using it. No one wanted
1: to spend a Bitcoin. When you were doing the payment services, were you going after like credit cards or who are your competitors when you made that first pivot?
2: BitPay, that's our business, Bitcoin payment processing. So how do we allow merchants to accept Bitcoin? and accept Bitcoin and convert it into fiat and then get paid out. Credit card processing, but Bitcoin data processing.
1: When did you move into like the remittance or cross-border payments?
2: One thing I always say to founders is you kind of pick your poison here. You either show success early on and you show revenue. But as soon as you do that, every single investor judges you on revenue. We were showing revenue day one when we had a business that was working. It's a little bit easier to like not have a business that sell hope and raise a bunch of cash on that. Well, this is gonna do that. This is our plan. But once you start showing it's like, well, this is what we're doing, it's like, okay, well, how do you do more of that? There's different mindsets on building a business, and there isn't a right or wrong way, but we went the earlier route. And in crypto, not many businesses were doing that. It was really challenging us for a raise large rounds. We were always scrappy from day one. We raised a small less than a million dollar seed round, which is awesome for us at that time. But in today's terms, we didn't raise a lot of capital. So we pivoted into this Bitcoin payment processing, realized that. Not a lot of people are using their Bitcoin. And we need to dedicate all our effort to getting more people to come into crypto. So we built a wallet and we spent a lot of time building APIs for that wallet. And then really went after a lot of Bitcoin ATMs. We went after a lot of merchants to really build on top of our wallet solution. That expanded pretty well. And I think we were the third largest wallet in the space by 2015, going into 2016 era. That was the second iteration and really building that out, very similar to like a Coinbase style wallet. And that did well. So we had our merchant business. And then we had our wallet. The third thing we started doing is, okay, hey, wallet's doing pretty well. Let's start opening different geographies. So we went to Canada, opened up Canada. We went to a few other geographies like in Mexico and also in Europe. One thing that we started realizing is that people were loading in US dollars, converting into Bitcoin, transferring Bitcoin over into Canadian CAD and withdrawing CAD. So this whole use case of money transfer, we started realizing this use case was happening right directly through a wallet. And we're like, hey, it's huge. This is like a real-life use case where we can really enable anybody in the world to transfer money across borders. And we started a product called MassPay, which was like the beginning of the rabbit hole of going into remittance and getting licensing and all that stuff.
1: Let's dive in a little bit there. When people were doing that, explain to me the history of what was the traditional way of sending money across the border and how are they using your products to do the same thing?
2: Using crypto for money remittance is completely different than traditional FX. So You have these money transfer businesses that exist, like Western Union and a few others out there. There's tons of them. They're local players. And what they really do is just buy a foreign exchange or FX off other banks. And those banks buy foreign exchange off other banks. Western Union might buy from Bank of America. Bank of America might buy from HSBC. HSBC might buy from Barclays. And it's like wholesale. The further you go down the food chain, you have the people with the biggest balance sheets that can sell FX at better rates. It's just kind of like a reselling game. The person that loses the most is the person at the bottom of the food chain that's actually making the money transfer because they're getting a worse rate. Every person along the food chain just takes a little bit. How traditional money transfer work is you're taking funds here in the US, you have all these wholesale rates, you get charged a rate and it depends on the day, whatever the FX is, the funds need to transfer across the seas and there's some balancing that the banks need to do. And then they withdraw out to the destination currency using a local payment method. The problem with that is that only big players can really do that. And this is like the big issue with money transfer. In order to efficiently do this, you need to have large sums of money in both sides. If you're moving $10 million, you need to have $10 million there in the US. You need to also have $10 million in say Mexico. Automatically, you need to have $20 million as a net capital for a company. And like very few companies can do this. Startups can definitely not. The way that Bitcoin works that's really powerful is that you can actually use the same value in real time. Us, a small startup, didn't need to have $10 million, but we could transfer $10 million because somebody would upload funds here, and we would convert it into Bitcoin here in the US, and then instantly send that same Bitcoin into Mexico and convert it into pesos and instantly deposit out. So automatically, we don't have these massive liquidity pools that we need on both sides to actually manage the FX, and that completely... Brings down the rate of innovation that happens in space, but also allows new entry players to come in and create a more competitive market environment for people to transfer money, which is the ultimate beautiful thing about Bitcoin and that it does to the world. Eventually, like people will be able to do this on their own, but you have these players that make it simple
1: right now. In that case, just to kind of follow it a little bit, I have a wallet with your company and I'm trying to figure out where the on-ramp is from like my bank or cash in the first place. So I understand once you're kind of on the crypto side, but how did people on-ramp into crypto in the first place? You could
2: use local payment methods. So whatever is available in the US, ACH, cards, wires, it's going to be hard to change that for the time being.
1: It still starts and ends with a bank of some sort or a credit card, some sort of traditional financial institution. When you guys were building this, I'm curious how you thought about the financial risk and the technical risk. I've got to think that $10 million trade you did as an example, someone gives you Bitcoin, it's still a volatile asset class. Their unit is still 10 million US dollars. So do you have to build like a trading operation as well to do that trade very quickly and then move the money to get it to the other side before there was any slippage?
2: Yeah, exactly. And luckily, like Bitcoin and different markets are pretty liquid now, and they have been for a while. We built a smart routing system. So if a person wants to go from USD to like, say, euro, I'll find the best route. I'll go from like USC, Ethereum, Ethereum, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Euro, whatever the best route is. So that's tech that we built out in 2016. And that's the engine behind everything. Our main goal was add more pairs in there to try to find out what's the best route that we can go. This is one
1: of the reasons why I love the story of Wire, because I feel like by the time we get to the end of it, you've built like every use case that people tried to attempt. You guys just went and built on your own with very little funding, learned a bunch of stuff, learned what was good about it, learned what was hard about it. And then just kind of kept moving to your ultimate point. So I guess this was a big time for you guys. It was growing very rapidly. What were the biggest pain points? What led to the pivots away from doing all of these different businesses?
2: Since we didn't raise a lot of funding, and that was a big caveat, we're like, hey, where is the future heading? And in 2018, after doing that for a while, we came to the realization that we built so much stuff. We went through this merchant payment process, we built this wallet, the APIs for the wallet, we built this regulatory infrastructure to move money across borders. And it was like super difficult. We did not choose an easy industry to be in, but we fell in love with it. And we built all this great tech. And Mike and I were sitting in 2018 in a board meeting and we're like, if we saw the early days of this Web3 community being built in 2017, 2018, and we were very passionate about it. And we started meeting a lot of the founders there. If this is real and if this is going to continue growing, where we were like, 100%, this is going to happen, all of finance is going to be disrupted by DeFi, Web3 is going to be the next evolution of the internet. And the one thing that we realized in 2018 was that all these players are going to need to have some tech to on-ramp into their products. Not everyone has a MetaMask wallet. It's going to be a very difficult thing. And we have all this technology. So how can we put our technology and make it easier for people to build? We went all in, made some really hard choices, scaled back the company. And it was like a very difficult time. But we went all in in providing this tech that we built for Web3 developers. And that was the beginning of the bear market. And we had this business that was working already, and we're like, this is a race to the bottom. This is going to be a long play, but this is where it can parabolically increase massively and like really have a big impact and change the world. We went all in on that. A couple of years later, we're here today doing the same exact thing. I think this is a final iteration.
1: Just looking back before looking forward, during that time, did you and Mike ever have second thoughts? When anyone listens to you talk, your energy is infectious. You talk about the community. I've never heard you say like, oh, we're going to try to set out to make $10 billion company. You just seem like you were built for this to build here. But I have to think there was dark days like everyone faces. Did you ever think about packing it up and going back to like cybersecurity? Or how did you handle it?
2: Yeah, of course. You're eating glass type situation. I've gained like 50 pounds and my health deteriorated dramatically. Mike's not in the company anymore. He's moved ahead in 2020, but he started out with like brown hair and now he has full gray hair. It's definitely not easy, but... We have a team that we're here for. We have a massive opportunity. This doesn't happen in everybody's generation. The invention of the internet that completely democratized communication, and we have now Web3 that's democratizing financial access. That just doesn't happen in anyone's lifetime. And I'm so excited to be born in this time period, to have the opportunity to make a change in this ecosystem. So I think that's what keeps you going.
1: You have this quote that I love. It isn't the big that eats the small, it's the fast that eats the slow. Tell me more about your ethos as CEO now and how you think about that.
2: Yeah, my co founder, Mike, actually used to say that all the time. This of the mindset that we had. You have all these banks that are behemoths in the ecosystem. And look at where crypto is coming. Look at Web3. When you put Web3, DeFi all together, it's the 31st largest bank. And pretty soon, within the next couple of years, it'll by far be the largest bank in the world. The traditional mindset just cannot compete with innovation, it's not going to be able to keep up. Even like the current mindset big company like JP Morgan, they're awesome and they're making massive innovations and we chat to them and they start off with RFPs and by the time they get done with the RFP or trying to request to build something, it's six months later. Trip does move a billion miles in six months. The mindset's not there. You're going to have some hungry entrepreneurs, especially in this bear market, that are going to be building the next wave of finance and it's going to be a very incredible time period to be part of. You just can't compete with that wire is big. And it's like, even hard for us to stay afloat with all the innovation that's happening. And things can shift so fast.
1: So I think this probably is a good transition to wire today. You have the checkout, you've got the API. And maybe an interesting segue off your last point was, I think for newer people, there is this belief that the crypto exchanges just are going to continue to dominate FTX, Coinbase and Binance are really the on and off ramps. I think you have some interesting views on if that needs to be the case, why that's the case and how that could potentially change and then maybe lead into how you view WIRE's most recent pivot.
2: I definitely think that parts of the exchange are going to get democratized. It's a really terrible experience. It's like, okay, well, let's go buy an NFT or something or let's go use DeFi. Okay, well, I got to go to Coinbase and buy crypto, then put it into like another wallet and then start using DeFi five days later when my ACH clears. I think that you'll start seeing the decoupling of exchanges over the long term Parts of the exchange are going to be brought into different applications, and you're going to make these applications really strong, whether it's OpenSea, whether it's whatever NFT marketplace, you want to bring the best user experience that has the best elements of Web3, which are security and ownership, in my opinion. That's going to happen. It's already starting to happen. And we're a good stopgap right now. A lot of the other on-ramps are good stopgap solutions. We're this in-between exchange where you go to like wire purchase, and then it deposits directly into your wallet. But I think that over the next couple of years, you'll see a lot more deeper integrations happening on these websites. A lot of these Web3 apps are going to have a lot more time to really figure out the user experience because it's really hard to build during the bull market. All you're thinking about is just no downtime, no downtime, no downtime. You're getting ran with servers with a website that just got created like a year ago. And you weren't thinking about having like millions of users, but this is like a parabolic growth happening. And all you're thinking about is not user experience, it's like no downtime. We're already starting to see a lot of people sign up. We have more people signing up for our APIs on a monthly basis than any month before. So builders are building and it's going to be exciting. Just the volumes aren't there. I do think there's going to be a big decoupling from exchanges. On the other side, I do think that exchanges will be powerful enough within the next 10 years that there will be NASDAQs where companies will go to float to them. Like the going IPO will be a thing of the past. It's not going to be sexy to go and IPO spend like six months doing this public market thing I think that over the next 10 years, Coinbase or FTX will have a massive opportunity. to Stripe money to, to go public, they'll go to FTX and be like, hey, let's list on here. And I think that's going to be a really interesting
1: dynamic. Yeah, that's actually the point I wanted to get to because I think that something that was special in WIRE's history was you guys learning regulatory jurisdiction issues. We can open up money here. We want to do it the right way. We need to get these licenses. We need to get these accreditations. And part of the issue is a Unknown security landscape. You're kind of in this gray area of like, well, did I just create, can I go public and not create a security? That would be really fast. But there's these delays. So, what is your view on the regulatory landscape, especially when you have something like Celsius or big things happening, which is clearly going to bring in more regulatory oversight, which I don't think is a bad thing. And to your point, it might accelerate the breaking up of exchanges into pieces and say, you know, you can do this, you can't do that.
2: At a high level. Having general investors invest in products that they don't understand the risks on is not a good thing. I definitely don't agree. Do your homework, but the homework out there is very vague. There needs to be better structure around educating people like, hey, this is what Celsius does. We give money to this. This is like our risk. This is our balance sheet. I feel like there's not enough information. Public markets, you have quarterly filings. You can do your homework. There's a lot of information out there, but it's just not the same in crypto. So I do think that there is some means of regulation that needs to happen there for sure. I don't know a lot about the SEC the securities laws. It's not a world that I play in, nor do I really want to play in that. It seems like there's going to be a lot of regulatory oversight happening
1: in the next coming years. I came from that world as just traditional finance. And I think that transparency is a good thing. There's what looks like good regulation is kind of a trade-off with allowing for innovation. But I also think that people think that with regulation, you don't have crashes. I watched really smart analysts look at Lehman's quarterly financials and meet with the management team and still have no idea what was going on. So regulation, transparency doesn't necessarily stop all bad things from happening. And the rush to overregulate is also risky because of, I think, this trade-off. That's why I think smart regulation is a hard but important thing to solve. So let's talk about wire and the API, the business today. Give me an example of if I was going to go start a new Web3 protocol or crypto, how can I use Wire to get going more quickly?
2: We basically bring life to applications. We have two products. We have our checkout product and our API. Checkout is a simple on ramp. So we help companies like MetaMask, their end users, to take credit card, convert it into crypto and deposit directly into MetaMask. And we help uh, hundreds of other websites in the space, like Rareable and many, many more. So the experience is like, hey, I'm an end user. I click buy on MetaMask. I go to Wire. I use my credit card, type in my billing information. Make it super fast. Within 60 seconds, you can have crypto and MetaMask. Our value prop is make it a fast transaction. Low KYC fast, but low limits. Nothing over $1,000, but very, very fast transaction. So people can get buying. That's our checkout product. And that's really good for people like, hey, I don't want a big integration and I want something really fast. But then we have a whole suite of API products and you can really build a Coinbase in less than a few hours. You can build an end-to-end Coinbase from the wallet infrastructure to on-ramping, taking payments into Coinbase, taking payments out of Coinbase and then converting the currency and then paying out globally. When you think about that, you can really build NFT marketplaces like Custodian, building a marketplace for NFTs. You can build a crypto wallet. You can build a remittance application built on top of wire. The world's kind of your oyster and what you want to build. So we see a lot of different use cases coming there. We've been really focused on developers. So you can get API keys and start building immediately. So you don't need to talk to a salesperson. We've taken this approach where just you get your keys and start building. But more recently, we've been working with larger brands and helping them get into the space, whether it's Topps NFTs or partner with LimeWire and helping them with their NFT marketplace. We're working with GameStop and helping them on ramp directly into the NFT marketplace there.
1: Was that a surprise to you seeing the NFT being kind of like a Bitcoin original, like 11, 12, thinking that, hey, we're going to payments, we're going to buy stuff. Wait, this thing has value. So people don't actually want to sell it to now. NFT marketplaces. What have been some of the biggest surprise use cases that you've seen from the developer community?
2: To be honest, not so much. We were really into the community in 2017, 2018. And I love crypto kitties. Back then, it was a huge thing. And I was like, why are everyone buying these crypto kitties? And it hit me then. I was like, there's something interesting here where in digital art, people are already buying World of Warcraft digital goods, and those digital goods are only active in World of Warcraft. I can't take this asset and move it over to another game. And I think that that's going to change completely. It's like really just taking money out of different networks. Like if I'm a square cash user, I can't move money into PayPal. I have to like go into the bank and then move it into PayPal. Open networks are better than closed networks day in, day out. I think that if I'm a game developer, I was thinking back then, this is like the future. That's where I started thinking about that. That still isn't there. That technology, a lot of people are trying to build this or have been thinking about building this, but it's quite difficult to get into life. I think that we're maybe five years away from actually having like a viable cross-network game, collectibles, items. That's what I was originally thinking about NFTs. The thing that surprised me is just the art really becoming a thing. The art use case of NFTs, I knew that it was collectibles, not so much as art, but it kind of makes sense because its royalties are built into NFTs in day one and royalties inherently aren't built into like real world art. So if I'm selling a piece of artwork, I don't know if he sells like three other times in my lifetime. I get zero dollars from that. That's completely different than like the music and acting where you get royalties on the lifetime of a piece of art. In artwork, that doesn't
1: happen. I mean, I tell everyone that a lot of this stuff has always been still in the experimentation play phase of playing with CryptoKitties and proving you can do this. And then the NFT boom that we just went through is that digital assets are a really interesting thing to think about. And like, what could you put into a digital asset? To your point, art's just one great example that if an artist has wonderful art, usually what happens, like maybe they sell it for a little bit of money. And then if their art takes off, two wealthy people trade it as a store of value amongst themselves. And then maybe the artist dies and it's worth even more because now we know there's only X amount left, but it doesn't really make sense that that artist doesn't participate in any of that upside economics. So it kind of gets into this other area of the tokenization of everything that I think sometimes freaks people out that, As a markets person, I think it's interesting that there's lots of things that markets can help with, like price discovery. But besides NFTs, just at a high level, how has switching from a company that had all of these products where you had end users to switching to the infrastructure layer, what are some of the changes that you've had to take the company, you as a leader, that you think about differently now, where you have people building on top of you versus solving those original problems?
2: I think about this all the time. The hardest thing that we had to do as a business, to be honest, Really change the mindset of like, all right, we're not end user focused, and we're going to developer. Making that pivot halfway through your company's career is a very challenging thing. And we weren't careful. We spent like from 2018 to 2020. By the time my co-founder left, it was still in flux. We didn't cut things at the end, and here's like a really good end of life for this. And it was this influx period while we're trying to build new products. It was a very challenging day. And I highly recommend that if you do make such a change really end of life things to get your focus into a new thing. It's not going to be easy, but you have to rip the bandaid. The faster you do it, the easier. So the first thing when I became CEO in 2020 was really, we're an infrastructure company. This is what we do. And really align the organization around that and build some focus around that. That was like the number one thing I did because there was just so many competing priorities happening in the business. And it was like so hard getting everyone on the same page. To be honest, one of the best things I've done to really help us get on the same ship is just making sure everyone's
1: on it. You've done some great things. Maybe now you could just give us a little bit of color on the numbers because I think they're pretty staggering. So you talked about it from the beginning. You never really went the VC route, but you didn't raise too much money because in this counterintuitive way, you were making money too quickly to get those big hope checks. How much money did you raise? How much processing power goes through wire? What's like your revenue like? And then we'll kind of lead into where that all went.
2: Last year, we did about 55 million in revenue. And the year prior to that, we did five. We grew pretty great and then well over 100 million run rate by the end of the year last year. This year, we'll probably land around 90 to 100, hopefully. So some good growth that we're seeing. Some slowdown, obviously. The market went down 70%. In comparison to the market, we're still doing great. And we're still adding. The important thing is like we're adding more people building on top of our APIs. That's the biggest thing that we're focused on. 1,300 developers building on top of Wire right now, active developers, like a lot more accounts. We have close to like 7 million end user accounts from our developers. I believe that last quarter we processed over $1.3 billion. And that's like same currency. So USD, USD, USDC, USD, but all across the ecosystem, we're processing well over a billion on a quarterly basis.
1: Well, I was telling everyone, it kind of ends in a happy story. Earlier this year, you were acquired by Bolt for, I think, $1.5 billion. So to go from a company that only raised $55 million to sell for $1.5 billion. It's pretty incredible. Tell me how you and Mike thought about that, the process, the decision to go from this bunk bed of hackers to building whatever the community needed to selling to such a big company.
2: Since day one, we've been really passionate about just bringing people into crypto. We started out when it's just like, people have these bitcoins, like how do they use them? That's just been the core thesis that's been stagnant, making it more useful for people to use. This is the future. How do we make it easier for people to build? When we're thinking about companies and Bolt approaches last year, when I'm thinking about it, it's like, hey, Bolt's got all these real-life merchants that are using crypto, and there's all these use cases, and they're building a wallet, and they're going deep into financial infrastructure. I really believe that when I think about really making it easier for anyone to use, like we really have to get to the masses. And I think that we have broadened ourselves outside of just like the Web3 and crypto community in order to get there. So I think there's a lot of synergies in exploring that world. And I think that Bolt has a good opportunity of being larger than PayPal, larger than Coinbase in the space. And that opens us into a whole consumer-facing arm that we're not part of. We bring all the infrastructure, and they've been doing a lot of consumer-facing stuff, and they have the merchants. So I think collectively, we build this infrastructure of merchants and consumers. We bring this really strong powerhouse that can compete with like a PayPal, Coinbase, Robinhood, whatever it might be. So I think like together, we build a really, really strong company, and I'm really excited about that.
1: Now that you're inside a bigger company, how does that feel from, you've gone through so many different parallels or life forms of a company from the true, just sitting on a bunk bed to a growing company, to a fast growing company, through recessions, through bear cycles, to an acquisition. How does it feel now to run Wire?
2: We're still running separately right now. It's like a slow migration. I'm really excited. Maju is an incredible CEO. Finally, I have a boss, which is great. It's amazing. Maju is an incredible CEO. He was at Amazon for many, many years building there as an executive there. And I have so much to learn. I've just like realized, like, hey, there's so much to learn on leadership and there's so much to learn on company building that I'm really excited about it, to be honest. It's going to be great. We're already starting to change, becoming a little bit more structured. Like we have weekly business reviews and going through metrics and stuff like that. It definitely have that going, but we're trying to keep base, still startup mindset, but adding a little bit more structure. It's bound to happen.
1: Yeah, this has been really fun. We like to end these podcasts with the same question: What are you most excited to build over the next six months, and what are you most excited to build over the next six years?
2: We release Smart Ramps, our product that connects our payment APIs into crypto or Web3. And I think that building an app store over the next six months, so if you want to take credit cards directly into Compound, into DYDX, is going to be really fascinating. People can bring their own smart contracts, so I think that's going to be a big focus of ours. How do we build better connectivity into Web3, the payment layer? That's going to be a big focus of ours for the next six months. Next three years, identity is huge. The whole vision around identity in your wallets are going to be massive. And I think that with regulation coming into space, I think that it's going to be even more important. So over the next three years, probably identity. Over the next six months, smart ranch for sure.
1: Awesome. Yeah, it's been really fun to talk to you. Like I said, when we started, I can tell the energy is infectious. And I really enjoyed speaking with you today. So thanks for the time. Thank you so much, Eric. I really appreciate the questions. Thank you for your time.
0: To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com.